Good morning again, Emmaus. Uh, If you would take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you have access to God's Word on your phone or a tablet device, feel free to, to pull that out as well. If you are a guest of ours this morning, or if you've not been here in a while, we're going through the book of Revelation in different parts and different ways, but we're in the process right now of looking at seven letters that were sent to seven different churches in Revelation chapters two to three. And so in just a moment, we're going to look at the fifth of these letters that was sent to a church at Sardis. Uh, Now, if you're bemoaning the fact that you're not out fishing this morning and that makes you think of Sardis Lake, then I uh, apologize for that, but it just happens to be where we are this morning at the beginning of Revelation 3. Before we get into study of God's Word and a passage this morning that has a lot of weight to it, as any passage obviously does, but there are some really difficult things to cover this morning as we look at God's Word And just because of the fact that when we come into church and we talked earlier about the fact that we don't want to get stuck in this entertainment idea, this concert idea, this religious duty, I want us to take a couple of moments here just for a time of silence. Now I realize with kids in the room, um, and adults for that matter, silence is is hard to come by, but we live in a fast-paced world. When you leave here this morning, you're going to go probably immediately to something else. Life just moves really fast. And as church, as God's people, if we don't battle against that in some ways, we end up just getting caught up in it ourselves. So if you would, just bow your heads for a moment. I know you've got to keep an eye on kids and things like that, but I just want to give us a chance as God's people gathered together this morning. No agenda during this time. Nothing other than just the gift of a moment to be silent and to reflect Maybe to think about some ways that you've seen God's hand at work in your life or in your family. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you give the gift, the gift of laughter. God, you give us times to sing out to you. But God, we also thank you for the gift of moments of silence. And the louder and faster that life goes, the more we need those times to reflect. God, to remember that you're in control that no matter what we faced this past week, no matter what we'll face this week to come, God, that you're at work. God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power at work in our lives and the victory that we have through Christ. And God, I pray that this morning that you would remind us of that in a fresh way through our study of Scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, if you got a bulletin, Coming in this morning, feel free to turn that over. There's a couple of notes that you can look at as we go through our time together. 
Let's read Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And most of my verses this morning will be from the New American Standard Bible. Um, and so it may look just a little bit different based on what, what you're seeing in front of you. But Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, from this passage this morning, there are two dangers and two promises I want you to see. On your notes, you're going to find two dangers and two promises. The first danger is that we can be dead and not realize it. It says there in verse 1, about the middle of verse 1 to the, to the end of that verse, it says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wow, there you go. That's, the, that's a, something to receive in and think about. When it says name in that verse there, this idea that you have a name that you're alive, it's talking about the idea of your reputation. I want to show you a map really quickly of the church of Sardis. Okay, what you're looking at on the screen, and we've seen this a couple of weeks, and I realize it's a little bit tough to see it as you're looking from a distance, but where those white boxes are and the blue star in the middle, if you're able to make that out, is in what in ancient world was known as Asia Minor. Today, it's modern-day Turkey which brings on a whole new significance in light of what we've seen in the news in, in even the last week. But these churches that received these letters of Revelation are written, written to these churches in the western part of what is modern-day Turkey. And it seems like the letters are patterned in such a way that they started in Ephesus on that west coast there, and they went around in a clockwise circle. And so we're now at the fifth of those at a place called Sardis. And this church of Sardis, it was a place that had a great reputation. It was a city with a great reputation, but at the time that they began to receive this letter in the first century AD, their re reputation of the past is pretty much all they have. They're still telling stories from centuries before. They're still relying on this reputation as a city that they've always had. And so this city, Christians who are living in this city would have heard something like this. The church would have heard something like this, that you have a name that you're alive, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. And isn't that a danger that we face in our world? That you can have a reputation for being a Christian, you can have a reputation for being associated with church, but in reality, at the core of things, we're really dead. And this church is faced with this danger that you could go through life 
thinking that you were right before the Lord, thinking that you have been made alive by God's Spirit, when in reality, you're really left dead in your sins. And many of you could probably tell stories about what this has even looked like in your lives. Times that you have done really well having the reputation for being a church person, having the reputation for being a Christian, but you knew deep down that it was fake. It wasn't real. Other people looked at you as a Christian, but at the core of who you were, you weren't following Jesus. You had never trusted in Jesus for salvation. You hear stories, and this passage is particularly important this morning because of coming off Falls Creek. You hear stories in church a lot of times of, well, when I was little, I prayed a prayer, or I was baptized, or I attended church, but I never really knew what it was like to follow Jesus. I never knew what it was like to truly be a Christian. I never knew what it was like to be alive in Christ. And so you had the reputation of being alive, but in reality, you were dead. That's what's being said about this church at Sardis, and this is a huge wake-up call for them because they lived in a city that had the same situation going on. What's happening here, the fact that they have a reputation for being alive, but they're actually dead, it's a purposeful contrast with what we find out about Jesus in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter one, you may have to flip back a page or, or scroll up in your phone a little bit. In Revelation, chapter one, verse five, one of the descriptions that's given about Jesus is that he is the firstborn from the dead, that he had been dead, but now he's alive. If you skip ahead to verse 18 of chapter one, Revelation chapter one, verse 18, I, speaking of Jesus, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So don't miss this this contrast here. Jesus had the reputation for being dead, but he was really alive. This church had the reputation for being alive, but most of them were really dead. They had never experienced the life-changing, life-transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important this morning that we sing those songs leading into this time of scripture to say that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that gives life to us. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. And I have to hear this clearly, it doesn't matter what my reputation is as a pastor. It doesn't even matter what our reputation is as a church. The question is, have we really experienced the life-changing, life-altering power of Jesus Christ? Have we experienced the power of the resurrection at work in our life? There's a couple of other verses in the New Testament that speak to this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, and I've got these verses up on the screen as well if you want to reference them. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says that there was a group of people who were holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. This is the idea that you have a form of godliness. You go through the motions as a church or as a Christian, but there's no power to it. It's just motion. You have the reputation for being alive, but you're really dead. And before we point the finger at somebody else and say, yeah, I know somebody like that, or I know a church like that, we've gotta look at our own lives and say, am I operating on the reputation that I have with other people, how other people see me, or have I really experienced the power of God at work in my life? 
Do we have a good reputation as a church or do we have the power of God at work in our church? Matthew chapter seven has a very, very scary verse. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, it's possible to say religious words and to not know what it really means to have a relationship with me, to not know what it means to experience my power at work in your life. So there's a danger in these verses, and I hope you feel the intensity of this danger from Revelation 3, that this church, one of the things that was said about them is many of them were dead, but they didn't realize it because they were relying on the reputation that they had. Here's the second danger. The second danger, not only were they dead and not realize it, but many of them were asleep and didn't care. Verse two of chapter three, they were asleep and didn't care. It says in verse two, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Sleep here is the parallel to death in the first one. Now I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I've been told it happens to me, though I'll deny it to the, to the end. Um, it might be late in the evening, and I sit down to, uh, to watch TV uh, with Amanda on the couch, or maybe even the kids are playing, and I sit down in the chair, and I'll hear something, and Amanda will say, you were sleeping. No, I wasn't. I, I wasn't asleep. Like, no one has ever told the truth about whether they were asleep or not ever. It's technically called resting your eyes, not sleeping. I wasn't sleeping. I, I was just resting. She's like, the kids, we're trying to get the kids ready for bed and you're sleeping. No, I was not sleeping. I promise I wasn't sleeping. You can, you know, have drool just like coming all down your, I wasn't sleeping, I promise. Like, uh, these people, they are asleep, but worse yet, they don't care. And Jesus comes to them and says, wake up. Wake up, you have to pay attention. What is going on here really matters. Here's what's happening in the background of these verses. The city of Sardis had been captured twice in military battles because the watchmen weren't paying attention. You can go back in history, two different times this city, which had an incredible natural defense system. There were three natural defenses, three cliffs that were around this city, it would have been next to impossible for a military group to capture this city. But in the sixth century BC and the third century BC, they were captured twice because nobody was paying attention. They said, we're safe, we're secure, we're fine, just go to sleep, it doesn't matter. Thinking that we're okay, thinking that we're secure and falling asleep only to find out that we're conquered as a result of that is not only a military problem, we find out in this verse it becomes a spiritual problem. That you could say, you know what, I'm okay. My life is good, I've done some good things and you end up sleepwalking through life and Jesus says, wake up and pay attention. The other thing that's happening in Sardis at this time when they receive this letter is Sardis is a place where there's obviously pagan worship going on, there's worship of the empire happening, but Sardis also has one of the largest Jewish synagogues that's ever been found outside of the Holy Land. The Jewish synagogue, the area where the Jewish people would have met, 
at this time has been uncovered by archaeologists, and it's about a football field in size. It's a massive size building with these beautiful mosaics that were, that were put, tiled onto the floor, these incredible features that are there. But the synagogue there in Sardis had this reputation for power and for wealth, and if you were a part of that, you kind of fit in really well with the city. But what you don't find in Revelation chapter 3 that you find in most of these other letters in the book of Revelation is you don't find any mention of persecution of the church in Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Probably because, and don't miss this point, probably because the Christians there had learned how to fit in. They said, you know what, if we just kind of go along with what happens in the city, don't really stand out too much, accommodate ourselves, we can figure out how to fit in and not have too much trouble come in life. And what they had found was there's something worse than moral depravity and there's something worse than doctrinal error. It's just spiritual sleep. It's I don't care. If I can just fit in and life goes well and I don't cause any trouble for myself, then that's successful. That's a successful path. Listen to this quote, and this quote's going to be up on the screen here. If you could just have, and this is not me speaking to you, this is an author speaking at us. If you could just have a good job with a good wife or husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have all that, even without God, you would be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making, a wasted life. You know what, some of the times I struggle, intensely so, with temptations to greed, or temptations to sexual lust, or temptations about exploring other doctrines or ideas, but do you know what the sin I struggle the most with probably is? It's just leave me alone. If everybody would just leave me alone and I could live my own life and live in comfort and drive home and close the garage door and nobody bother me and I could relax and take life easy and nothing bad ever happened, doesn't really matter if anything good ever happens, but if there's just the path of least resistance, I want that path. But the danger with that path is that you find yourself falling asleep on that path. You find yourself reaching this point of it doesn't really matter what I do. I don't really care what I do. I just want the path of least resistance. And the church at Sardis had gone down this path. And that's a path I worry about in my own heart that we're dead and we don't know it, but we're also asleep and we don't care. And Jesus comes along here and he says, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. What's the remedy to it? He gets to it in verse three. He says, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Many of the people at the church of Sardis were not ready to stand before the Lord because they were sleepwalking through life. And if we're not careful, we don't look much different than the world around us. We accommodate, we look a lot like the world around us in order to have the path of least resistance. And Jesus is saying, you're trusting in the wrong thing. Wake up 
and repent and remember what the core of the gospel is. And you say, okay, if those are the dangers that I might be dead and not realize it or asleep and not care, there better be some good news on the backside of this. And there is some good news. There's two promises, two promises. If we're not gonna rely on that, what are we going to rely on for life? Two promises. The first is the power of God's spirit. You've gotta go back to verse one to get this. If you go back to verse one of chapter three, it says to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. The letter at Sardis, the letter to Sardis begins with this incredible promise. And what the promise is, is all of these letters begin with different descriptions of Jesus. And this description is a description that gets back to the power and the work of God's spirit among the people. And here's why the promise matters. Because if you're dead and you don't realize it, your only hope is to experience the power of God's spirit in your life. And if we're awake and we don't care, the only hope that we have to be shaken out of that sleep is that we would experience the work of God's spirit in our life. What the people needed because they were dead and because they were asleep, what they needed more than anything else was the power of God's spirit to work in their church and the power of God's spirit to work in their lives. Romans chapter eight, verse 11. And I may have printed this on the notes. I know it's on the screen, but it may be on the notes as well. Romans chapter eight, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. To be Christian, to be made right with God through Jesus Christ is something that we can never do on our own strength. It's something we can never do on our own power. We can never do it by our own grit. The only way that that happens is by the power of God's spirit at work in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now why does that verse matter? Because the book of Revelation and really the entire New Testament is a battle about who is really Lord. Is the emperor Lord? Are these false gods Lord? Are we each Lord and boss of our own lives? Or is Jesus Lord? And there's a verse in the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess Jesus is Lord is how you have salvation. This verse says that the only way you can do that is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this church at Sardis is given this promise that the power of God's spirit will be at work in their lives because this is their only hope. One of the things that scares me, and probably scares me more than anything else as a person and as a pastor, is that we would operate as a church or we would operate as individuals and we would look successful and yet we had never experienced the power of God's spirit at work in our lives. I put a quote up on, up on the screen. And this is, is, this is my quote to you, but I just want us to be able to read it together. The greatest danger in Western Christianity 
is that we would attempt to operate with a form of religion that is completely devoid of the life-giving and life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. The most dangerous thing that could happen to Emmaus Baptist Church is that we could look like a successful church and yet never experience the power of God's Spirit at work in our life. That we could look like a model Christian and never experience the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. We live in a culture, we live in a culture that's so similar to what Sardis had that it's possible to fit in. It's possible to have the reputation for Christian and yet not have that power at work in our lives. And you say, what power? How would I know if the power of God's Spirit was at work in my life? Let me give you a couple of ideas. The first is, when salvation happens, we know that God's Spirit is at work. Because we know that the only way that salvation can happen is through the power of God's Spirit. So when you're a part of a church and you see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you see people confessing Jesus as Lord and being saved, it's a sign that the power of God's Spirit is at work in that church because that is something that only happens through God's Spirit. Another thing is when faith is our driving force, not human rationale, human power, human effort. We say we can only live by faith as we're trusting, if we're trusting in the power of God's Spirit to work in our lives. Another way we know that God's Spirit is working is when a church is able to worship freely in spirit and in truth. Everybody says, I will put aside my preferences, I will put aside my traditions, I will put aside anything that I might want to happen. All I want to see is God's Spirit drive us to worship in spirit and truth. And that happens when the congregation is gathered together, and it happens as we live our lives throughout the week. Worship, true, authentic, God-honoring worship only happens when God's Spirit is at work among a people. Now, it doesn't mean that you necessarily are that person that raises your hands. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a certain volume of music. But what it does mean is those words that we're singing and those expressions that we're giving are empowered by God's Spirit, not by a desire to fit in, not by a desire to stand out, not by a desire to try to conjure up some sort of emotion. It's God's Spirit driving that. Here's another sign of God's Spirit at work in our lives. When the fruit of the Spirit begins to show up in such a way that we know that only God was able to do that. If you're not familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, you can find this list in Galatians chapter five. And the fruit of the Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those sort of things that we usually have in very short supply uh, in, in our lives. When those things are happening in the life of a church, and in our lives individually, it's a sign that we know that God's Spirit is moving. Here's the danger that we talked about earlier. The danger is that we would attempt Christianity or we would attempt church life separate from the Spirit of God. And I left out one thing earlier to save it for last. The way that you will know that God's Spirit is at work in your life and at work in the church is when the first place we turn, not the last place, is prayer. When we say, the only hope that I have for life, the only hope that our church has to experience the power of God is when we call out to him in prayer. Strategies matter, methods matter, 
All those things are okay, but all of them pale in comparison to experiencing God's work in our church because we're a people who pray. Experiencing God's work in your life because you're a person who prays. I've been convicted of this in a very intense way this last week. And I just want you to know that I'm gonna do everything I can in the days ahead that we as a church would not operate apart from the power of God's spirit. We wouldn't make a decision, we wouldn't take a step, we wouldn't go a direction without seeking the Lord and knowing that it's because of his power and his leadership that we're able to do these things because the Lord knows that we need to see salvations in our church. We need to see salvations in our area, in our land. We don't need more people to come, we don't need to be more popular, we desperately need to see people's lives transformed and that only happens through the power of God's spirit. And as a result of that, you get to the fourth thing on your notes, the last thing, the last promise. When we experience the power of God's spirit, the result of that is we know what it is to experience the victory of Jesus. And that's why we sang that song earlier to prepare us for this point. We experience victory in Jesus. Look at verse four. Revelation chapter three, verse four. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. My eighth grade boy self comes out when I read the phrase, soil their garments, so I just gotta be honest with you there. <laughs> Completely transparent, no hyper-spirituality, just eighth grade boy is just flowing through me at that phrase. But You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. In the ancient world, you wouldn't dare go into a temple if your clothes were dirty. It's this idea of purity, that you're not going to do that. You're not going to approach a deity if you're soiled, if you're dirty, if you're, if you're unclean. And they will walk with me, at the end of verse 4 it says, they will walk with me in white, color that's common for purity. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then in verse 5 you get the description that goes along with that. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That word there at the beginning of verse five, he who overcomes, or maybe in your translation it might say he who conquers, it's a common phrase that you get in the book of Revelation. And if we're not careful, we hear he who overcomes, he who conquers, and it sounds like something we do on our own, it sounds like something we do by our own grit, our own power. But there's a verse in Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Let me ask you to, if you're able to do something this week or in the weeks to come, if you need a verse to memorize right now in your life, sometimes we get out of the habit of memorizing Bible verses, memorizing scripture. A couple of months ago, as a church family, we memorized 2 Corinthians 4, 5, if there's a verse that you need to memorize right now and you say, you know what, I'm not really focusing on a verse during the week, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 would be, would be a great one to focus on. They overcame him, speaking of the enemy, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even until the point of death. So how did they overcome? How do you overcome against sin and death? Through the blood of the lamb, 
the fact that Jesus died for us. Our victory that we have in life comes through Jesus. Not anything that we do our own, it comes through Jesus. That's how we conquer, that's how we overcome it. It comes through Jesus, the blood of the lamb, and the word of their testimony. That they confess, that they testified that Jesus is Lord. That he is powerful to save. That is at the core of when Revelation talks about overcoming, when Revelation talks about conquering. In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, if you want to go back this afternoon or sometime this week and look at these verses, and at the end of Romans chapter 8, you get another section of scripture that talks about conquering. We are more than conquerors through Christ, that we're more than overcomers. It talks about what it means to truly be a conqueror, to truly be an overcomer through Christ. He who overcomes, who experiences this victory through Christ, there are three things that verse five says happens to that person. The first is they will be clothed in white garments. The color white shows up 14 times in the book of Revelation. You get a white horse, a white throne, white clouds, white clothes. It's this idea not only of purity, but white was a color that symbolized triumph or victory. When the people would walk in a triumphal procession after a successful victory, they would be clothed in togas. And if I couldn't have worn my t-shirt this morning, I really wanted to come up here in a toga. But, <laughs> but I, 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 I kept myself from that, for better or worse. I decided not to, not to do that. But they would wear these white togas that would symbolize being clothed in these white garments meant you'd experience victory. You'd experience this victory through Christ. You overcome and you were clothed with this white garment. Then look at the second phrase there. The second phrase says, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Oh my word. Okay. This, is, this opens up a can of worms that's hard to get back in the can. This is a verse that is oftentimes used in reference to the fact that if it says I will not erase that person's name from the book of life, then it feels like maybe the converse is true and it's possible for your name to be erased from the book of life. And then the next step taken after that is this is where people will talk about you can lose your salvation. That you were saved, that you were headed for heaven, that you were right with God, and then somehow you lost that. You were no longer right with God. Let me give you a little background for this verse and maybe explain kind of what's going on here. In the ancient world, it was extremely common, both in Jewish synagogues and in these Greco-Roman cities, it was extremely common to have a citizen registry. So all of the citizens, either at the synagogue or in the city, would be listed on this registry. Their names would be written in there. But if they were executed because of a crime, or if they turned against the synagogue and said, I'm going to confess Jesus as the Lord. I'm not going to be a part of this group anymore. And they left that group, their name would be erased out of there. They would be taken off the list. They would be taken off the registry. And rather than this verse being a threat that you could lose your salvation, this verse is one of the greatest promises in Scripture that that, in fact, will not happen. Because what Jesus is saying in this verse, he's saying, I will not erase your name. You might get kicked out of your city. You might be executed for being a Christian. You might get kicked out of the synagogue, but I will never erase your name. 
And we know that because of the next phrase that comes after it in verse five. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The fact that this is the counterpart to the fact that we confess Jesus as Lord here on earth, he confesses us before the Father. And he says, if you have turned to me and you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and you have believed in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and your name will never be erased from the book of life. And I will stand before my Father in heaven and I will confess your name. Nobody on earth may be able to remember your name. Nobody may care about you. You may toil and labor for the Lord year after year and nobody knows anything about you. You don't have a great reputation like was talked about in verse one, but you do have Jesus on your side. You have victory through Christ. Now I say that, we need to hear that the real threat in in Revelation three is not that you would lose your salvation, The real threat is that you would think that you were saved, but you never truly were. You would think that you were alive, but you were really dead. That's the threat. Not that you would lose your salvation, but that we would misplace it and think that this religious tradition, this religious formalism would be good enough. All right, I want to wrap up with three things as we get ready to conclude. If you're here this morning and you are uncertain about your salvation, And this may be because you attended a church camp at one point. It may be because you were forced into religion as a child. And you look back and you think, I don't know if I'm ready to stand before the Lord right now. Or you may be here this morning, and, and don't miss this if this is your case. You may be here this morning and you are doubting whether or not you're ready to stand before the Lord. You're doubting your salvation You're looking around at your life and saying, I don't really know if I was to stand before the Lord right now, if I'm right with him or not. How can you know? Well, there's a lot of places we could chase this, but I want to give you three words. And they're on your notes there because I want you to take them and use them with your family members and friends because there's going to be a time in your life that somebody's going to walk up to you, a child or a grandchild or a friend at school, and they're gonna say, I don't really know if I'm saved or not. I don't know if I've really ever experienced God's work in my life for salvation. Three words, they all start with H just to help us out. The first is help. Have we ever called out to the Lord for salvation? Have we called out for help? The second is hope. Where are you putting your hope? Are you putting your hope in your own personal good deeds? in your own personal religious deeds, or are you putting your hope in Christ? You're confessing him as Lord. And the third is holiness. Not that you're perfect, but that you are pursuing holiness in your life. You see the fact that God is shaping you by his spirit to have the fruit of the spirit at work in your life. When we're trying to answer that question, am I right with the Lord? Have I ever really experienced salvation? Have I called out to him for salvation? Have I called out for help? Am I hoping in him, and do I see the signs of holiness at work in my life? And if you say, you know what, that's not me. Today is the day to get right with the Lord. Today is the day to call out to him for salvation. We don't want to find ourselves dead and not realize it or asleep and not caring. We want to experience the power of God's spirit, and we want to experience that victory in Christ. And if you have experienced that before, I pray 
that every step that we take, that every decision we make, both individually and as a church, will be driven by the power of God's Spirit at work in our life, that we would surrender everything to Him. I'm gonna pray for us. After I pray for us, we're gonna sing a psalm together. This is the invitation. This is the time that if God's at working in your life and you say, I don't know if I'm right with the Lord, or I've been sleepwalking through life, or I need to turn to the Lord in a fresh way, now is our chance to do that as we respond to him. Let me pray for us, and then we're gonna sing this psalm together. God, this is a, a difficult set of verses in your word. Father, I've struggled a lot this week with knowing how to present this, how to say this in a way that matches what your word says. God, help us not to miss the danger that these verses are talking about. We live in a part of the world where it's extremely easy to look like a Christian, it's extremely easy to look like a church, and yet we have never experienced the power of your spirit, we've never experienced the victory of Christ at work in our lives. God, I pray that the result of studying your word this morning would not be that we're filled with doubt, but the result would be that we are filled with surrendering ourselves to you in a fresh way. That we overcome through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And our testimony is that Jesus is Lord and we surrender all to him. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.